Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Good morning, everybody. Scripture reading today comes from Luke 15. I'm going to read verses 11 through 24. Pretty familiar story. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the youngest son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in wild living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. One of my mentors describes the prodigal son story by this title, The Father Who Runs. I was struck by this title, especially because over the course of the last few weeks, I've been thinking about the image of God the Father and how the history of my own father has shaped the way I viewed God for most of my life. When Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, it's always important to know the people who were in the room with him. 
It can be hard for us now 2,000 years removed from the telling of the story to know the cultural impact of a story like this. Thankfully, we have biblical scholars who do their best to fill in the missing information for us. It is also hard for us to imagine a culture structured around laws of, and rules of purity. For us in 2016, we know that purity still matters, probably too much. But for Jews in the time of Jesus, whether or not you were pure had to do with nearly every aspect of your daily life what you ate, the clothes on your body, the people you'd spent time with. Everything in your world had the potential to tarnish your purity, and tarnished purity came with cost of your reputation and social standing. So when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son in this context, we need to know that in so many ways we are dealing with a family who in the eyes of those concerned about purity are downright filthy. The beginning of the story has a son who asks for his inheritance before his father has even died. This is no small request. With this request, the son essentially says to his father, I wish you were dead. Now give me my money so that I may never see you again. Jesus establishes from the beginning of the story that this son has decided to completely sever the relationship he has with his father. It's an ultimate act of betrayal. The son departs from his father's home with an incredible lump of money to engage in what the text calls wild living. We can only imagine how many purity laws this young man broke in his wild living. To those in the room when Jesus was telling the story, they had to know that this son, who had already betrayed his own father, was now so unclean that returning to his father's home would be even more insulting. His son had become so impure that even touching him would be disastrous for the father. But the son does return, and we know the story well. The father sees him from afar and goes running to him. Many biblical scholars agree that the actual act of running for a man of this status would be considered shameful. So in the act of running, this father disregards his reputation. He runs without any concern for the consequences of his wealth. And what is more, he is running towards what could be only known as the most filthy creature someone in Jesus' time could imagine. The text says that he threw his arms around him and kissed him. This was revolting to the people who heard this story. This father ran. This father didn't just touch his son. He threw his arms around him and used his mouth to touch his body, a place on the body most susceptible to uncleanliness. If we are to correctly assume that the Father in this story is meant to be God, then Jesus is telling us something about who God is. God can be like a father who throws away any expectations of society to love us. Many Christians have used this story to illustrate the work of Christ on the cross, to illustrate that no matter how filthy we are in sin, God will forgive us. But only if we repent 
and express our deepest sorrow for our sins. What is interesting about this story is that the father doesn't seem interested in his son's repentance. The story says that the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The very next line of the story, almost as if he interrupted him while he was saying this is, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. The father completely ignores the repentance. He ignores his son's own dismissal of his worthiness. Nothing about the story suggests that this son needs to do anything to be forgiven, just to know that he is deeply loved. This isn't the father God that I knew growing up. The father God that I knew was about to run, but it wasn't towards me. He was about to run out the door. In my own understanding of Father God, God is the Father with his bags packed at the front door. This Father isn't leaving for a trip. He is prepared to leave for good. This image of God was given to me during my earliest days as a Christian. It was handed to me with no ill will just what was normal and orthodox for the Christians in my life in the days following my actual father leaving our home with his bags packed for good. My dad left our family when I was 11. In the pain and turmoil that followed that departure, my family was supported lovingly by a small group of Christians who ended up pointing us towards the church that I would spend much of my adolescence. During these formative years in the church, I was told that God was my father, that God loved me, and that I was to love God, my father. I learned that God was the father of Jesus, but also my father, but that because of all the bad things I have done and would do in my life, that God had to kill his actual son, Jesus. It was the only way that God the father could no longer be mad at me. It was the only way that God the Father could love me. It was the only way that God the Father would stay in my life. Much like the people who heard Jesus' story in the prodigal son story, I heard the above story about God the Father in a context that mattered deeply to me. I heard the gospel story as an early adolescent who had just experienced his father leaving his family. I heard the gospel story as a 12-year-old who had never experienced love from his father, but who was told in the days following my father's departure that I needed to love him, regardless of how much he hurt me. And so, when I was told that God the Father loved me, I didn't know how to make sense of that. When I was told that I was to love this father God, I had no way of knowing how to do that. I looked around at my peers with their arms outstretched to the sky during emotional worship songs saying, oh God, I love you, and thought, I am so alone. This makes no sense to me. 
So knowing God as a father has never really worked for me, and it has actually harmed my ability to experience intimacy with God. What I have come to know over the last eight years is that I can let go of images of God that do not work for me, and that I can seek out images that do work for me. The father and the prodigal son's story and the prodigal son story seems like a better father than my own, but it still doesn't work for me because I'm not looking for my father to run to me, and I'm not the filthy son stumbling back home. It does help redeem the image of God the Father, one that actually seems to run counter to evangelical understanding of the Father God who killed his son. I'm realizing now that for me, visualizing my experience and intimacy of God as a father has never really worked. If I close my eyes and try to think of God as a father, I see a man standing at the front door with his bags packed, ready to leave a crying family behind. I still can't find love in that image, only pain. I guess it makes makes it easier for us to understand God if we can imagine God as a person. I guess it made sense at some point for God to be a man and a father. I think we took Genesis 1 to mean that we were created in the physical image of God, but I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure about it because I'm not convinced that God would like to be limited to our earthly understandings of fathers and men. I'm not even sure that God would like to be limited to our understanding of our physical bodies. Lord knows how we feel about our bodies and how we are told to feel about them. For me, knowing God as a mother has helped me quite a bit. The mothers in my life have been incredible and reflect a more accurate understanding of my encounters with the divine. But I don't always need God to be a person. And while my former evangelical self screams at the idea, I I can start to name different images of God. Again, not limited to the physical confines of a human body. Because I know people in my lives who have had lousy mothers and fathers, and who assigning a parental image of God at all does not serve them well. And I know that the church continues to use images of ideal families as metaphors for God's love and working in our lives. I want to continue allowing myself to get to let go of these harmful images and to step into an enthusiastic affirmation that my own experience of God is valid, regardless of how it looks. I still sense the need to make the complexity of God more simple, to be able to think of this divine being as a thing that I can imagine or name. The trick is not putting or assigning all of God to that image. Firstly, because I don't think God can be fully contained within it, but also because God just shows up in so many different forms. You see, God is already with me, even before I need to think about what to call God. What I'm hoping is that I can step into this wild and profound understanding of God's real presence within each and every moment and to release the need to bottle, box, or name it.
As we go into open worship, I wonder if you might be led to list all of the places where you can name God. I wonder how letting go of an un unhelpful image of God might free you up to dance more freely with God. <laughs>